Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Today's scripture is from Matthew 12, 15 through 21. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, well, it's good morning to be with you. Good morning to you. Lou City won the Eastern National Championship last night. If that doesn't mean anything to you, it should. Um, and uh, also, I'm glad to be with you. I've been really sick the last several days, and up until yesterday, I didn't have any voice at all. And so a lot of people prayed for me, and I'm very glad to be able to be with you. And I also had one of those weeks where I lost my glasses, and then I found them with my foot on Saturday morning when I crushed them. So it's been quite a week. And then between the services, I lost my sermon, but I found it, thankfully. So... <laughs> Now we're ready. So it is good to be with you. Uh, you know, as a professor, I regularly get requests to write recommendation letters for students, either for teaching jobs or graduate programs. It's not the most exciting part of my life, my job, but I'm happy to do it especially if I know the student, and especially if the student has been pleasant. Uh, I haven't had this happen, but I've had professor friends who, you know, had a punk kid who questioned the value of the class and then at the end asked for a recommendation, you know. Um, or maybe you can think of a, a job situation where you are an employee, employer of someone. I, I found this funny letter of recommendation uh, from an employer for his former secretary. He said this, uh, while employed here, Mrs. Brown displayed great facility in the use of social media and texting, uh, not to mention telephonic skills with a variety of non-employment-related parties. Furthermore, she displayed great attention to detail in many areas, with the possible exception of document review and preparation and mailing. And she is punctual on the day she comes in on time and always comes in first place in office departure, right? So I don't have the kind of chutzpah to write that kind of letter for a, a bad student or something. But this tongue-in-cheek version of a letter of recommendation, I think, reveals what a letter of recommendation is really supposed to do. A good letter of recommendation describes the person's skills, certainly, and what they've done and what they could possibly do in the future, but especially it describes their character and their demeanor and their manner. Like, what kind of person are they? Because that's what you really need to know. And I bring this up today because the text that's before us today is like a letter of recommendation for Jesus written by God himself through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And today we're continuing in Matthew chapter 12, 
And these verses that we just heard read, and we'll look at here again a little more closely, they would be super easy to overlook, kind of like a cover letter that you might just throw away or something. In fact, when I realized that this text was assigned to me, and as I was kind of planning ahead, I, I said, who chose that as a sermon? And then I realized, well, the answer is probably me several months ago, because I've been doing the, the, the sermon planning. But I was thinking, what in the world is, am I going to say about this? Because there's no like action going on. There's no intriguing dialogue between the characters. And so at first, when we read these verses, we may feel like it's kind of like an EUA, right? An end user agreement where you just kind of scroll through. You don't really read it and just click, right? I'm afraid these are verses like that or like an ad on a YouTube video you're trying to watch where you're just tempted to just hit skip ad. And I've taught through Matthew many times and I realized I've never really paid that much attention to these particular verses. But as I've done so this week, I have been blown away to see how absolutely crucial they are and how they really sum up and explain so much about, about what Matthew is trying to teach us. And in it, I'll just tell you right from the beginning, we're going to see who Jesus is. We're going to see that he, it's a letter of recommendation, in a sense, that's telling us who Jesus is, how he operates, his character and manner, and then also what he will do. So if you have a Bible, you can look with me, or you, we got it printed, and we'll put it on the screen as well. We're going to be in twelve fifteen to 21. Of course, whenever we look at a biblical text, it's always super helpful to get a little run-up to what's going on, and these verses really require that because our very first verse says, Jesus aware of this. So what is he aware of? If you remember from last week, or you can go back and read it on your own, we saw in chapter 12, verses 1 to 14, that there was a very intense conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and Pharisees, over this issue of the Sabbath and what it means. And the result of all of that is one of the most powerful and dark verses in all of the Gospel of Matthew. It's Matthew 12, 14. It says, they resolved to kill him. They took counsel together and they said, this is it. So we're only about halfway through the book and already the religious leadership has decided they are going, they've had enough of Jesus. He's too disruptive to making claims about himself that are, they cannot handle. And so they decide to kill him. And that really sets the tone for everything that happens in the rest of the book. Right after this, we'll see next week, there's this very intense conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. They finally call him demonic, we'll see. Then in chapter 13, we see he changes his ministry style. He starts teaching in parables, which are very confusing to people rather than in the clear way he was. <clears throat> and the whole rest of it, there's conflict all the way up or all the way down until you get to chapter 27 when they finally fulfill what they had decided to do back in 1214. So the point is, it's that really that fulcrum point, that hot spot of 1214 where they decide to kill him, that Matthew then inserts these verses. And, you know, Matthew quotes the Old Testament all over the place. This is the longest quote from the Old Testament he has, right from the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, the longest quote he has right at this place. So I've realized I need to not skip ad, and I need to not just agree, but pay closer attention. I, wanna, I want you to I want to help you pay closer attention as well to what's going on here. So what do they say? What's this letter of recommendation about Jesus? Like I said, it's going to tell three things about us. Here's the first one. Who Jesus is. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, this, all the activity that Jesus is doing, was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him. 
So we first learn about who Jesus is, that he is the chosen and especially beloved servant of God. And this is coming from the book of Isaiah, because what's happening back in the book of Isaiah, probably the most important Old Testament book for the New Testament, in the second half of that book, starting in chapter 40, in Isaiah chapter 40, you get this long description of what God is going to do. And what's God going to do? He is going to complete and fix the world. He's going to complete the story that started way back with Adam and Eve and all the way through Abraham and Moses and David, all the things that went on, all the frustrating, disappointing, all the death and decay. The the promise of Isaiah chapter 40 and beyond is that God is going to come and restore to the earth his perfect and just and beautiful reign where there's no cancer, where there's no destruction, there's no death, there's no hatred, there's no divorce. There's life together in flourishing and joy, this justice and peace. And that's the message of Isaiah 40 to 61. You can go and read it this afternoon. And what Isaiah says is, inspired by God, that all of that is going to come through a servant. It's going to come through a specially anointed servant. And our word Christ which is not Jesus' last name, as a lot of times we may tend to think or something. And the word, the Hebrew word Messiah or Messiach, both those just mean anointed. And that's what it means to say Jesus is the Christ. And you can see why early Christians, looking at back on Isaiah from all that they experienced with Jesus, realized he's the one. He is the anointed servant through whom God is going to restore his reign upon the earth. And that's why Matthew quotes this long section from Isaiah to show he is this one. This is the fulfillment of all that God had promised before. Now, this idea that Jesus is the unique servant of God, the son of God, is this is not the first time Matthew said this. Here we are at the midpoint of his ministry, but we actually saw it back at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry as well, back in chapter 3. Let me read for you what we saw there. It says, In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom is now it has come near. And then quotes Isaiah, This was he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. There's movement here. God is coming. And then when Jesus is baptized, skipping ahead to verse 16, it says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him on Jesus, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am fully or well pleased. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, here in the middle, we're going to see it in the transfiguration and at Jesus' crucifixion as well, the same thing is declared, this is my beloved, unique, anointed son. It's quite similar to what Jesus had just said himself back in chapter 11. He says, All things have been committed to be by my Father. No one knows the Son except for the Father. No one knows the Father except for the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, there is a special, intimate, unique relationship between this man who is standing before them, Jesus, and the God of the universe. Another place in Isaiah that's crucial to all of this, that's all woven in, verses that may be familiar to you, From Isaiah 61, that Jesus is also going to apply to himself and other places in the Gospels. Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. 
because the Lord has anointed me. There it is, to proclaim the good news, gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. These will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. So who is this Jesus? I give you all these Isaiah quotes because this is what Matthew's trying to tell us. This person that's before us, before him physically, before us in this text of Holy Scripture, is the long-promised, spirit-filled, unique servant, son of God. That's the first thing on his resume. It's pretty good. The second thing that Matthew tells us in this little letter of recommendation is how this person that operates. Okay, that's who he is. That's impressive. But what is he like? How's he going to operate? Look at verse 15. Aware of this, knowing that they're going to try to kill him, Jesus withdrew from that place, and a large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill, and he warned them not to tell others about him. And then skipping ahead into the quote from Isaiah, verse 19, he'll not quarrel or cry out, no one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. <clears throat> These brief descriptions from Matthew and from Isaiah, they are a powerful description of Jesus' manner and mode. What does he do? How does he act? And I think they can be summed up in one word. He's gentle. He's gentle both towards his enemies and toward those in need. I mean, just, just think about what we've just seen. 12.14, he's had this conflict with them that they brought on. They decide to kill him. He knows that. And instead of fighting with them, I mean, he is the son of God. He can do anything. He's just, you know, he, he performs all kinds of miracles. He heals people. He's going to multiply bread, walk on water. He doesn't zap them. He doesn't just you know, try to outsmart them every time, just say all these sort of things to make them feel and look stupid, right? He did that a little bit in 12, 1 to 14. They deserved it. They brought it on. But he doesn't, he doesn't pick a fight with them. He doesn't say, angels, descend. Instead, he continues to do what he loved to do. He knows they're trying to kill him, and he just keeps on gently healing people, touching lepers, fixing broken limbs, and he warned them to not tell the people, the people that he healed said, don't, don't spread the word. Why? Because Jesus isn't looking for a fight. He's not trying to stir up a crowd. He's not trying to get more followers of any sort. And he's not cowardly. He's being wise. He has a mission to accomplish, to fulfill God's work in the world. And he's being wise. He's not, he's not crying out. He's not wrangling. Verse 19 again, it says, he will not quarrel. He won't cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. I really like the translation from the NRSV. It says, he will not wrangle. And we saw in the verses before this that with the Sabbath controversies, and we'll see again in chapters 21 and 22, 
If called upon, Jesus could stand up and articulate himself and speak out and speak what is true, but he's not that kind of person to seek out these dramatic confrontations. His way is to work quietly, inconspicuously, and with measure. He's not seeking a shouting match that he would certainly win with the Pharisees. Every time they conflict, he wins, but he's not seeking that out. There will be conflict, but it's never of Jesus' choosing. So we see him being incredibly gentle, even with his enemies. But he's also gentle towards those in need. Right? I mean, let me read verse 20, 20 for you again. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. A reed in these days was a, a very you know, tall, straight plant that you could use for making straight lines and measuring. So if it's break, broken or bendable, it doesn't do, it's good for nothing. A wick in a time with no electric light was really important. You lighted everything with oil lamps. And so they were usually made from linen. And once they got frayed or, or uh, too short, they would begin to smoke. It'd be like if you're making a campfire and the wind keeps blowing in your eyes, it's just good for nothing. You don't want a wick that's smoking. That's a horrible thing. So both a broken reed and a smoking wick, they're, they're good for nothing. They're a hassle. This is a poetic way of saying what we've been seeing from Jesus all throughout these chapters, that his manner and his mode is a gentle caring for lepers and Gentiles and women and demon-possessed people. These people got his special attention, and that's who he cared for. These are people of, as one commentator says, low vigor and diminished vitality. Just think about it. Generals, revolutionaries, CEOs, who do they want to gather around themselves? Accomplished go-getters who get stuff done, right? And who are super skilled. And if they have some brokenness, don't bring it to work. We're just getting the job done. The kind of people the Pharisees like too. And Jesus is described here for us as one who is gentle and caring and welcomes and even cherishes these smoking wicks and these bent reeds. Reminds me of Psalm 145, 14. It says, the Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. Or what Jesus said back in chapter 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is unexpected. That Jesus' manner is gentleness. His manner, even though he's, he is transforming the world, it's through a mode of gentleness, such that, remember back in chapter 11, even John the Baptist is beginning to say, is this the right guy? Is this the way to do this? And Jesus responds with all the things that he's done, and he says, happy is the one who's not offended at this way that I am. So Jesus is the unique son of God, anointed by the spirit. He's gentle, he's non-quarrelsome. And then third, what will he do? If we hire him as king, what will he do? We'll look at verse 18 again. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love and whom I delight I'll put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he'll not snuff out. 
until he has brought justice through to victory, and in his name the nations will put their hope. So this unique servant son of God, he's not going to snap or snuff out the weak, but he will do something. He will not rest until he brings God's perfect justice and righteousness to the earth. This is Jesus' calling. It's a mission of justice, and it's a hope for the nations. And what is this bringing justice to victory? This is the same message that is all throughout Matthew and all throughout the New Testament, that the kingdom of God is coming to the earth, that God's kingdom of heaven, as Matthew likes to describe it, is going to come and replace and restore all the brokenness of the kingdom of the world. This is what Matthew calls the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And it is a place of justice, not in the harsh judgment sense, although there's always that for the rebellious, but it is a place of justice, meaning there's peace and shalom and flourishing and joy and righteousness and goodness and beauty. And what's happening is that the servant is doing this, Jesus, for the hope of all the nations, This theme is that it's for everyone, not just for Jewish people, is all throughout Matthew and is going to culminate in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew. And the point is, by quoting Isaiah, Matthew shows this is not just like a new idea that God said, oh boy, this thing with the Jewish people hasn't worked out. I'll try something else. This has been the plan all along. The promise to Abraham was that God would use him to be a blessing to all nations so that all peoples would be united and come to know their true creator. And now Matthew is saying, this is coming into reality through Jesus. This is already in the Old Testament and it's pointing forward and now it has come into its reality through this one man, all the nations. And so we think right now, all over the world at this moment, in Japan, and in Zimbabwe, right, and in Brazil, and Canada, all over, there are people hoping in Jesus' name. Just think about that. That is amazing. They are hoping in his name because this is justice for all the world. So there's a lot of beauty here, a lot more than we might initially think. It's a rich and thick portrait of Jesus. And as I said at the beginning, it'd be so easy just to kind of skip over these verses. But I've really come to see, and I hope you can begin to see as well, they are a beautiful nutshell of what God is about in Jesus. Now, many of you have told me over the last several weeks that as we're going through Matthew, you've like come to see Jesus more clearly. And I just want to say, hooray, that is amazing. That's exactly what this is about, that we, when we read the Gospels, we especially get to experience and transform and be encouraged and challenged by who Jesus is. And I just want to push that a little farther and say, whatever else you think Christianity is, it must start and end with this kind of text about who Jesus is, what he's like, and what he will do. We're not Paulinites. We might read the Apostle Paul, and he's very important, but he wouldn't want us to say that. We are Christians. We're Christians because our faith is based on a person, not just a set of doctrines, not a set of morals. Those are both good and necessary, but to be a Christian means that you believe that God has finally spoken in a person and that we're putting our hope in that real person's life and death and resurrection and ascension. And so to be a Christian then 
is to be one whose hope and life is centered on this person, which means to be a disciple. Doesn't mean just that you agree to a bunch of doctrines or do a bunch of good stuff or don't do a bunch of bad stuff. It means that you are finding your life in another person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and to be a disciple of him. So as I think about this text that is pointing us right to who Jesus is, I think the takeaway for you and me goes right along with these same three things we've seen of who he is. So I have three things I want you to take away from this that are right on what is being said about Jesus. The first is this. We are now chosen and beloved because of Christ. We are now chosen and beloved because of Christ. In other words, the Bible talks about this amazing truth that we, by faith, by believing in him, by putting our hope in him, we are actually united with him. Our identity becomes his identity. And as a result of that, God looks upon us with delight and love. Delight. You want that. You might have spent a long time from childhood on building all kinds of walls of performance and masks because what you want and what you need is for someone to delight in you. And by putting faith and hope in him, God looks upon us just as he said, this is my beloved son. And he says, Scott, I delight in you. Don, I delight in you. Emma, I delight in you. The Bible is so shocking about this truth that it even uses an almost awkward metaphor to describe our relationship with Christ, that we're married to him. This most intimate of ideas that the church is the bride of Christ that is now united with Jesus, such that when God looks upon us, he is seeing the delight and love that he has for the Son. And that means, friends, if you are here today and you are hoping in his name, it does not matter if your marriage has failed and whether it was 100% your fault or 10% your fault or whether you're financially not successful, maybe, maybe you have wayward children, maybe you have habitual sins, maybe you just feel like a lesser, like everyone has more friends than you and more money and a better life. Whatever it is, all is welcome, and all are welcome to find healing and transformation and delight because of this truth of who Jesus is, that he is the beloved, delighted one that we can find ourselves in. And the second takeaway comes right from these truths as well, and that is that as a result, then we are called to a life of gentle and compassionate ministry. We're called to a life of gentle and compassionate ministry. You know, just so ironic to me that we so often 
lift up and value leaders of any sort, including Christian leaders who are confrontational and bombastic. And I know there are rare times and places that a confrontation needs to happen, but I'll just tell you, I, I don't trust anyone who revels in that, who takes that on as their identity, who's maybe known for this and who talks about how important it is because all the things about being a sort of bombastic, aggressive person, you may say, well, it's my personality type. Well, I want to say it may, it's not a virtue though. <laughs> because all of those traits are the opposite of the fruit of the spirit, which are again, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And in this age of all kinds of social media options, it just, it's, it's always been this a human reality is that it is so easy to be confrontational. You know, I have people that don't like me. You probably do as well right? And in those situations, everything about me wants to just wrangle or run intellectual circles around them or whatever, right? But I'm reminded that to be a Christian is to take Jesus' yoke and to say, he knows what he's doing. And Jesus, who had every right to wrangle, because he was completely right, and I'm not completely right. And yet he was gentle, He was gentle in his interactions. And when conflicts come, he stands up and he's clear, but he's never seeking them out. And I say this as an RSOP, which is another part of my personal personality test, a recovering strong opinion person. That is someone who has strong opinions about various things to recognize that far better is the gentleness that Jesus himself models of being quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then finally, I think right from this picture of who Jesus is, the third takeaway is this, that we are called to work for the kind of justice that represents God's coming kingdom for all peoples. It's a natural outflow of this, right? That, so that our work as missionaries, sending missionaries and going and helping with orphans and supporting the ministry of the church here and far away, that is all a taking of Jesus' yoke upon ourselves. It's, it's engaging in the very work that he is engaged in, that he is not resting until he brings justice to the earth. So to be a Christian means that we are engaged in those things. That's not separate. That's not an add-on. That is part of what it means to be a disciple, So whether it's adoption and orphans or human trafficking, local things we're doing here like affordable Christmas, medical clinics, neighborhood workday this afternoon, little choices that no one else sees to do good and kindness and mercy. None of those things will save you, of course, but the point is that is what it means to be a Christian and therein there is joy and there is so much life to take upon Jesus' yoke upon ourselves, to be engaged in the kind of work he is engaged in with gentleness and kindness, restoring people, that is goodness and beauty. So you see, friends, you and I, we're all living our complicated lives rooted in some image of the kind of person we want to be. You may not be fully aware of it, but that's what you're doing. You have this image of the kind of person you want to be. And I would recommend for the job 
Jesus. That he models perfectly who God is for us. Beloved, gentle, and working for justice. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.